Hello and welcome to Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by Dasan Premadasa to discuss ways in which data scientists can improve the customer experience for the end users of their work. Dasan is the founder of DasCX, an independent business analyst consultancy that helps businesses with their digital transformations and IT project delivery. He's also the host of the Das CX show on YouTube. Dasan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Genevieve. A few months back, I had the pleasure of appearing on the Das CX show, and we talked about how businesses can make use of AI and machine learning and where we see those technologies heading in the not-too-distant future. Now, we had a fantastic time doing that recording. We did. We sure did. It was about an hour-long recording, but afterwards we ended up talking for maybe an hour or two more. About two hours, yeah. And we discussed everything from the Marvel Cinematic Universe to ways in which technical people can often trip up when it comes to customer experience. Yeah, yeah, we did. So we decided we'd continue this conversation and that's exactly the topic we've got for you today. Yeah, it's a very exciting topic. It's uh, number one, when you have a conversation with somebody, you always think it's going to be the interview and that's where you're going to cover all the interesting bits. But it's funny that we ended up talking a lot more about uh, Marvel Universe, obviously, with who, who's, who's our favorites, and also ended up talking about how data analytics and how customer experience, how all those things work together and how they're all interdependent on each other to deliver the results. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I hope we can wrap everything uh, today, cover everything we want to cover, um, or else we may have to do maybe two or three more. I would be very happy to do that. <laughs> Same here. So to begin with, Dasan, you originally started off as a software developer. Now, somewhere along, along the line, you shifted to focus on the end user experience. Seems like quite a shift. Can you walk us through your journey from software developer to customer experience consultant and tell us why you made that shift? Well, that's an exciting question because nobody ever asked me that before. Let's uh, set the ground uh, back like a foundation is I'm a geek. Uh, straight up, straight away, it's adamant that stuff I do and things like that. But uh, growing up, always wanted to be a software developer because that was, for me, that was a cool thing to do, to build new things. And you can actually make things come to life. But I always, even though I was a software developer, web developer, UI developer, whatever it is, whatever the roles, those roles, I had an opportunity to interact with customers and the clients and the employees, the people who are using this, these systems. So I enjoyed that whole aspect of linking technology with the business and the use it delivers. So I was more attracted to that part than the actual technology of the solution at the, the technology behind the solution. I'm always focused on the application of the technology to the business. So for me, you can have the, I've always been a guy, you, you look at a technology and go, 
oh, it's a cool technology, but then I'm the, I always look at, okay, how can we apply this to, to improve the user's life or, or the business or whatever it is. So I always had that tendency. And then obviously growing up in Sri Lanka, you have these large software houses, you actually work. But when I moved to Australia, I ended up working for a lot of uh, organizations as their technical uh, person. So that means a lot of interactions with the business, a lot of interaction with the users and so on. So eventually I realized that I really love doing that because I don't think I'm a full-on introvert person. I wouldn't call myself a complete extrovert as well. I'm that there's somebody in the middle, a hybrid. I think the, the whole part of business analysis, why I became a business analyst was I looked at that role and I went, look, that's a role where you're going to play that entire life cycle of the project. You're going to get involved at the beginning of the project and you're going to be there until the change management. That's way beyond the involvement of a software developer in the life cycle. And I love that piece. Like I love um, the, whatever the technology we build, you build it uh, to the best way you can. Then you apply it, then see you look at, okay, is that improving customer experience? Is that improving capabilities? Is that improving operational efficiencies? So I was more interested in that piece. So that's how I ended up uh, becoming, moving into the BA part of the function. So I still call myself this terminology I recently, I think last year I heard from a gardener called business technologist. I would put myself there as a business technologist because even right now what I do, I still get excited if when somebody says there's a problem like that and how can we solve it? Yeah, that's the story. Now you're a consultant in customer experience. Is that basically the same thing or is there a slight difference again between the customer experience side and the business analyst side? So I've always been a, well, I've been a business analyst for about the last 10, 12 years. But the customer experience is something I've always been, digital transformation, customer experience is something I've always been interested in, even way beyond that. So it's about uh, when I'm building solution, I always look at, okay, how the customers use it and how we can use it to improve the customer's experience. They're having customer or the employee's experience on the system we are building. Fortunate for me, I work for a lot of organizations which actually gave me the opportunity to look at uh, raw customer experience. How can we improve customer experience? This is like mainly um, when I was working for uh, a company called Club Assist. We were doing uh, looking after the battery operation for almost all the auto, most of the auto clubs in the world. So when we build those solutions, we always are very much focus on, on giving the best experience to the member. That's your RICB member, an RMA member, and your road service person, the person who is delivering the service. So that shifted the way I think about stuff. So I, I pretty much looked at everything beyond that point. Like, okay, how can we improve the experience? How can we improve the engagement? Because when the businesses look at these people, you want to retain your member. So you have to make sure you continuously deliver the best experience to your member. Also, you have to make sure that you retain your service providers as well, because these are contractors. So how can you improve your experience when you're delivering that service to them? 
So they keeps coming back because in a lot of instances, these companies, it's rarely you find a company that pretty much dominate the market because they are the only people who provide these solutions, right? So that defining factor is customer experience. How do you make your customer? How do you make your member? How do you make your contractor, employee feel about you? So you they look beyond price. So that's where the custom experience is. So I've always been that, and I felt like I enjoy it a lot more when I look at it like that. And also like uh, then after that, I ended up working for a company called Treasury Wine Estates where we had a very similar, um, when I did the digital, they hired me to do their digital transformation for their B2B sales operation. So the first 12 months I did the strategy and then the next three or four years, I ended up implementing it with, with a team, of course. And we looked at it through a similar lens where we looked at the B2B sales team, service providers, how we can make their life easy so they can go and provide a better service for their customers. And also we looked at, okay, what are the problems these people are having so we can actually address those issues, give them capabilities, give them technologies so they can do a better job. I would say for the last 10 to 12 years, it's pretty much been around custom experience centric uh, jobs where I ended up. So wherever somebody says digital transformation, in my opinion, that's one, one aspect is custom experience improvement and then capability improvement. Then obviously you have people and culture. So those are the things you look at. So that's how it shifted from developer business analyst to a custom experience. Because you can have programmers who are custom experience focused programmers. You can have a BA who's custom experience specialist BA. You can have a project manager who's actually a specialist in that area. So it's more like a specialization. I look at it that way. What got me really interested in customer experience was a comment that was made by a previous guest on this podcast, Jonathan Stark. In Jonathan's episode, we discussed building your authority as a data scientist. One of the suggestions he made was that rather than going super deep technically, a data scientist could also build a niche for themselves by becoming very good at delivering a superior user experience because this is something that technical people often neglect. What are your thoughts about that comment? I mean, you can't say it any better than that, because even if you look at developers, right, I'm going to go back to that example. So you have your developers who are full-on introverts. If you work in a business, this is my experience. I know some great developers who are introverts who actually just do that piece. But for a business, if you're actually working in a business, you have a person who look at things from the business application, business value point, instead of a technology point, those people in the long run adds more value to the business and the businesses appreciate them over the ones who just focus on technology. So, so in his point, where he actually said the data scientists instead of technology, they have to look at the applications and the user experience and things like that. That is more improvement because I've done this example. Once I 
wanted to do a trial or a test like this. So what I did was we built two solutions for a group of companies where one, we built a really good UI, amazing UI, but we didn't spend too much time on capability. The other one, the capabilities was top notch. We had the best developers for it, but the UI wasn't good. For over 12 months, people in that good UI one traced that solution. They loved it. They thought it was the best thing ever. The people who got the bad UI with the bad user experience, that system, they hated it, even though that did the job better than anything else they had. Simple as that. The user experience plays a massive role in when it's come to choosing who you prefer. Customer experience, same story. People would pay a little bit extra to get that special feeling, ease of use. Like, I don't think I'll ever go beyond an Apple phone because I find it very user-friendly compared to, I have an Android, which I use for development, but I'll never see myself using one of them. I think Apple is the best example of a company that understands customer experience. Oh, yeah, 100%. Hands down. Even just looking at the Apple stores, full disclosure, I have an Apple phone, but I have a Dell PC. Just like me. But one of the things I've noticed, if you go into a shop where you buy a regular laptop, it's geek central. Whenever my parents need a new laptop, they always bring me along because I can speak geek and I can make sure that they actually get what they want rather than sometimes you see those people there and they go in and they say to the salesperson, I just want a laptop. And the person can sell them just about anything because the person who's buying it doesn't have a clue. And yeah, I feel sorry for them. But if you look at an Apple store, it's actually targeted at normal people who can't understand all of these technical aspects of laptops and computers and that. A hundred percent. Like we can talk about Apple like every day. I love how they do it. They started opening like, have you seen that interview Larry Elson did with uh, with somebody and he talks about when, uh, because him and Steve Jobs are best buddies. So when when Steve Jobs came and told him that we are opening up stores because uh, Oracle, they run Oracle, um, the checkout systems and ERPs, are, I think they're still running Oracle there. So they're like, oh, so you only gonna open one? He's like, nah, we're gonna open it everywhere. So they, in a time when everybody's shutting down stores and stuff, this guy just went and did it and it's still working. Did something, right? Steve Jobs was fantastic. And I think part of the reason why Steve Jobs was so successful was because he was not a developer first and foremost, but he understood how to speak to developers. Yeah, 100%. That pairing of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak was what made Apple so powerful. Yeah, and also he got in uh, this guy who um, Bill Gates to help him out as well. For him, it's it's all about the outcome, delivering mm-hmm. a good user experience. I mean, this was the Surface and Microsoft Surface, and that was the idea for him to put the Apple iPhone. I think the first iPhone. They they he wanted to put make it smaller so it'll fit in a pocket. So again, it's it's the experience. The fact is people like things that look pretty. Another ex- example I can think of is back when I was in high school, we had 
this horrible maths textbook. Each page in it looked like it was typed on an old-fashioned typewriter. From a technical point of view, I'm sure it was fine, but I hated using that textbook because it was just so ugly. And I liked using the nice pretty one with the nice new glossy pages and the new text and the pretty pictures. Mm -hmm. And the information could have been exactly the same, but it was all the presentation and the user experience. 100%. It matters. It's just like when you're giving a presentation, you can put colors and make it pretty, or you just can do it in a really shitty place. But message sometimes doesn't get through to the people. So I think you're, that's what Jonathan, Jonathan, right? Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you what he said. It's all about, this is what I'm telling my uh, new um, BAs as well. It's all about application business use. If you can't use it, there's no point. You can't just because it's the new technology, it's fancy. Unless there's a business application to it, it's just useless. So why do you think technical people do tend to neglect the customer experience side of things? I think it's what gets, gets you excited. When you have a project and if you just have a developer doing everything, projects fail. If the developer is the BA, if the developer is the developer, if he's the project manager, if he's the implementer, and if he's the support, there's a massive possibility that project's going to fail. You need those different people coming from different angles and try to drive the ship to the destination. You need, you need a good BA who actually look at it from the business perspective and convert those business requirements so the developers can understand clearly. And then you need PMs to lead the ship, get it done, get to the destination. I think the developers, the, at least when I was studying, we were so focused on the device. If you're doing an engineering uh, degree, that's your engineering. Everything's numbers, this and that. You do not talk about the fluffy stuff like, you know, how does the person think? What's the feeling and this and that. They don't talk about that. And then, but if you go to an art school or something like that, you actually think about those things, right? That's why developers never uh, don't like to work with UI designers and things like that because they think that's a bottleneck. You, you know what I mean, right? It's yes. And it's a normal thing. And I don't think it's going to end as well anytime soon because it's, it's a personal trait thing for me. And I've always been the person, like uh, I, I always prefer the business application. How, how does it look like? Even if I'm building something, I want to make sure the design also look better. UI is better. Background has to work, but the design and the look, how how it's um, how does it look like from outside and what does it do, the purpose of what we are building, that's more important to me. But then you have people who get excited about the technology behind it. I, there is this one CIO who um, I was um, working with him, and we were in one of the leadership meetings with the directors and stuff, with all the directors of the business. And this is not even a small business. To the entire conversation, when we were talking about the business value and things like that, that the only time that guy stood up and got very excited when we started talking about SAP, HANA, some cloud something, he got super excited. And then one of the directors like, well, so this is the first time I've seen you laugh, smile this much and got excited. 
because they love that technology. They love the whole thing. It excites me, but not that much. So, so I think it's a hardwiring thing. One of the things I've found, tools like Power BI are everywhere nowadays. And they're everywhere because business executives get excited when they have a pretty dashboard that they can use to access information. But a lot of developers really hate using things like Power BI because they want to be doing the old style coding. 100%. So one of the reasons I actually moved into moved out of being a developer was I saw the trend that technology is going. It's actually getting to a low code, no code thing. Unless you are actually in the lower level doing development at the core level, the 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 layer, the application layer, the, the UI layer, and that apart from the outside of the business logic layer, it all became no code, low code. Like right now, if you look at it, like, Power apps. How powerful is it for a business with somebody with a basic with Excel expertise can pick up a uh, can go and create a basic automate a basic process using Power Apps and Power Automate. This is skills that you previously about five years ago you or ten years ago you couldn't have done without a developer. You always needed a to, to go look at it and start coding something. It's getting to that. Uh, and I'm sure there are so many no-code, low-code platforms coming up now. Unless you're really a good coder and you're really at that level, there are so many applications out there now just targeting the general business user and giving them the ability to get it done without engaging a developer. So what you're basically saying is that because of all these no-code and low-code software pro- products, and when I think of those, I think of things like there's Power BI, but you've also got your website builders like Elementor, for example. Those are taking the average coders and forcing them to compete with robots. Oh, yeah, 100%. And you don't want to be competing with robots because the robots are always going to win. Hundred percent and average. It's, it's actually anything to do with average. If you average, you have to either pick up your game or you have to move on or move aside. Yeah, you've got to move up the value chain, and customer experience is a way of moving up the value chain. Yeah, and and then again, you have to. It's again going back to what you want to do, what you really enjoy. Like I, the only reason I I wanted to be a developer was I enjoyed building the end product. I enjoyed the end product, but I knew I had to build it to see it the way I want to see it. But but then you realize, look, you can get to that end point without you developing it. So that's where all your other tools, it may not be as good. It's like that conversation argument you used to have with uh, uh, Java developers and C-sharp developers with C++ developers. Oh, yeah. C++, you always say, oh, yeah, we don't have JV, like virtual machine, like what you call runtimes, you know, like we run through the like lower code. Yeah, that's cool. Awesome. But the other guy gets done a lot more work faster than you and things like that. So it's that same argument again right now. You can say, oh, yeah, the power app, they're not good. They're not good enough, this and that. Yeah, but you see the business start using the system within a few days of time. And they, they just automated the process uh, within a few days compared to a few weeks and months of somebody building something. 
a lot of what we've been talking about so far has been in t- uh, examples of software and computer hardware in the case of Apple. But for data scientists, most of their output are going to be things like pieces of data analysis and models. Mm-hmm. What would good customer experience look like in that context? Look, data science, da- data itself plays a massive role in delivering customer experience. So in order, one of the first steps we do when we're actually trying to improve customer experience is we actually have to gather data. It all starts with data and understanding the data, gathering insight, whether it's uh, operational insights, whether it's customer insights, whatever it is. So based on the data, only we can make those decisions around, we have to do these one, two, three, four, five steps to improve customer experience. So the data is the backbone of any customer experience improvement effort in a business. So if you have the data, that's good. And if you don't have the data, you have to figure out, okay, what kind of decisions and what kind of decisions we, and for to make those decisions, what data we require. So you, you, that's where you actually going, you need to bring in data experts to look at the data and create those models to help us to make those right decisions moving forward to improve customer experience. So um, am I on the right track with, uh, with the answer here? You're looking at this from your point of view as a customer experience expert, but I'm looking at the flip side of your answer as you're saying it. I'm thinking if I was a data scientist who was working it with you, I would be the one who would be gathering that data and building those models. If someone like you didn't exist within the organization that I was working for, I'm thinking, how could I use those in order to deliver a good customer experience? Uh And from what you're saying, I interpret that as the focus should be on the decisions that you're trying to make rather than on the models and the data themselves. Is that right? 100%. Yeah. So first question you should ask is, if you are the one who's interacting with the business, you have to do that engagement discovery to understand what matrix, what KPIs we're trying to change to improve customer experience. If you try to, let's say, let's let's talk about an example. Let's say you want to improve B2B uh, of a retail chain that you have. So you have to, first of all, get, okay, I'm trying to understand, improve customer experience. That means I have to understand, okay, what kind of a action would improve customer experience, right? It can be anything about um, giving them access. So online orders. So today they have to call up my office and make an order. So I'm going to give them, I'm thinking, thinking, of giving, creating an online portal to do, do that. So for me, what you should do is you have to have those conversations with the business users who are interacting with the customer to understand that. Or you have to make sure you run surveys or you go directly and talk to these customers and ask, hello, Mr. Customer, what can we do to make it easier for you to interact with us? How we like? How can we make it easier for us to do business together? Then you work backwards. Then you identify. Okay, what are the things we need to change? Okay, then break it one level down. What are the KPIs to for those to understand those? 
what data do I need? And to make those decisions, what data models do I have to create? Then only you have to go and start creating data models. If you do it the other way around, I have this data, and using this data, I can create these data models. Then you tell the customer, use this data model to make your decision. That's not going to work. That's when you run into a lot of resistance from the business. And a lot of um, people don't want to use it because they people are very simple. They look at it and go, your data model is not working, right? Because you're not addressing their pain points. You are making an assumption based on your experience. This data, this data model would help you. It might. But it all comes down to how good are you in conveying that message and how good are you in selling it? I know some people are really good at selling that, but 85% of the time I'd say you'll have run into a lot of resistance. But if you are a data uh, scientist who have those conversations with the frontline people or the ones you are interacting with, what are the decisions you're trying to make? What are your pain points? Let's work together and work out how we can, what data you need, what models you need, and let me go and build those data models for you. That's the right way to do it. You may not have all the data, then you have to work it out. How can we capture the data? So it's a directional thing, really. I think it's how data science science is taught in universities. People in schools and universities are taught to start with the data and the model because they're being assessed on can you fit this particular model to this particular data? It's very hard to simulate that environment where you have to start with the end user and then work out what does that end user want. 100%. And, and it's, that's why everybody have a designation. You just play a part in, a big, big, uh, in the big picture. So it's a, it's a big, broad thing. You have your analysts, business analysts, data analysts, not data analysts, business analysts, doing the requirements, understand what I can talk to the data scientists, analysts, whoever it is, and just explain to them, this is what we're trying to do. Do you have the data? What are the data sources? How can we create the data model to support these teachers in the business? So it, it comes from there. So in, in an organization, understanding a university, they won't teach you to be that anybody in that spectrum. They just teach you, you're doing a data scientist degree or whatever it is so that's your piece so you are specializing in that there has to be somebody else to do it or you figure out that just like i did this is not a, not fun for me anymore you have to go do something else the really thing is just like in bis the great one so you have your okay this may sound controversial for you to be great if you have that really good data scientist, technical data modeling one. But if you can build that soft skills to interact with the customer and articulate a problem and get things done, you're going to go to a complete new level. Otherwise, you, you can be okay. You can be good. You can be somebody respected in there. But if you want to be the big shot, if you want to be, if you are as competitive as, um, if you don't want to be ordinary average, if you want to be the best at what you do, then you have to have that. Same thing I tell all the BAs. You have a lot of average BAs who are really good at, you know, just because you can write a good uh, requirements document, 
uh, doesn't mean you're a good BA. You, you have to have that um, soft skills, technical skills. You should be able to have conversations with IT technical developers, business people, and just do it like uh, without an effort. So that's very, very limited number of BAs like that in the world. So I'm sure in the data scientist world also, it, it's a very limited uh, number there. So you have to make sure you have that, those skills. And unfortunately, I don't think you need to all look at it that way. Through my work, I speak to a lot of data scientists. And one of the things I've heard again and again are stories about data scientists who've built these incredible models that would solve pressing business problems for example, automating some manual task, and they can do it with high levels of accuracy, but they can't get anyone to use those models. So they are actually answering a problem that the business has, like you mentioned that the data scientists should focus on, but they're also not getting take up of those data science products. How could they change that situation let me make sure I understood the question. Do you want to know if a data scientist is a business, if he's running it as a business, and if you want to sell that product, the solution as a product, how can he sell it through by improving customer experience? A lot of data scientists are actually working in-house. A lot of them, it might be a data scientist who's working for a big company. And they've built some model that's meant to help the internal functioning of that organization. They've addressed a customer need, and yet they're still not getting take up of that model. Yeah, but then in that case, do you have to really be honest and ask the question, is that really a problem for the user, right? Because that's where the problem is. A lot of developers, a lot of, lot of us, technical people, we think that's a problem. But in the business sense, it's actually not a problem. It can be due to multiple reasons. Number one, the people, person who's doing it might look at it and go, oh, this thing gonna can uh, fire me. I might lose my job. That one concern, my experience, what I've seen. The other thing is the whole point of you implementing that problem, maybe just two or three minutes a day for me to continue working with the problem than me taking a step back and re-looking and interrupting my life, my world of how I do, number one. Number two, you haven't sold it right to the right person, right? You might be trying to talk to somebody who's actually, when it's come to customer experience and stuff, it comes down to the levels that you sell. And if you're actually somebody in the business, if you're a working person, if you're doing the job, the financial benefit to the business, most cases, what I've seen, not a top priority for you. Is it saving me time? Is it helping me to uh, reduce my stress levels? Is it helping me to do something really good and look really good in my next performance review? Is that going to help me win a raise, like get a raise, like a salary increase? Those are the big motivators for the people who are in a role. I've seen that in government. I've seen that in private firms. So if you are selling a solution, like in my, like as a BA, I've seen so many 
solutions and be like you can fix all this but they don't want to listen to it because it's not addressing their problems they're addressing the business's problems but not the individual users problems yeah so if that's the case you don't go to them and try to sell it you sell it to somebody up in the top cfo you're going to say by implementing this model or a sales leader you're going to say it's going to help you to generate this much revenue and it's going to help you to um, hit the target within short period of time it's going to help you in the next 12 months to increase your revenue increase your sales volume by 30% 40% or you talk to your cfo and it's going to help you to reduce this much money from your pnl it's going to you know you look at the owner of the business medium scale you're going to say look it's going to help you to get a full visibility into your uh, how the business runs or whatever it is it, it, it's about identifying who you're going to pitch and for whom it is a big problem it's as important as solving the problem because you can solve a problem about that PNL it's going to save 50 grand or 50 million for the person who's pushing a button in a in a workflow he doesn't care in most of the time unless he can get the credit and also there's a risk from those points people's point of view that by using your model it could make their job redundant and they could lose their job 100% so they're going to kick kick down and most of the most of the people don't go beyond that. They just like, oh, are you trying to solve the problem? They're not, but nah, because you haven't gone spoken to the right person. You have to take that to you, um, to the CFO, to the person, department head. Sometimes even the department heads don't want it because his number of people that he's reporting into gonna go down if you apply. So you have to go beyond that. So it's all about finding the right person as well. Very important when you're pitching. I'll tell you what. That's something I'm also learning because I've started my business and I know uh, this. Uh, I've created this product for digital strategy to improve the performance of customer experience, uh, improve the performance of your field sales team as well as customer experience. So you go and offer that to salespeople and and um, some low like uh, like normal sales reps and things like that. They, even though they like it, some don't like it because that means you're giving more visibility into what they do on a day-to-day basis to the leadership team. So by implementing those things, because they just, you know, they instead of calling seven customers, you're only calling five customers. But when you actually introduce um, more visibility into start tracking points and things like that, it's, it's, uh, it's going to, you pretty much going to get caught that you're not doing it right. So if I want to sell that, I want to go I have to go and sell that to the the person who's either owns the business or uh, runs the sales org. So he can actually tweak here and there and make sure that he improves the sales and the sales volume, performance of the people and things like that. It's all about who you take the idea to because otherwise your idea is not going to go anywhere. So it's understanding the motivations of the different people at different levels of an organization. Yeah. As you've been speaking, I've been thinking about this in the context of ChatGPT. I love it. I love it. I love ChatGPT. Seems like we can't have an episode of this show without having a mention of ChatGPT these days. Uh, 
you've got two groups of people that have come emerging since the arrival of ChatGPT. You've got the people who think, isn't this great? We can save all this time and we can do all this thing, these things as a result of it. But you've also got the people who are thinking, oh my God, my job is going to cease to exist because a robot can now replace me. Yeah. And if you were trying, if you were a data scientist who'd created your own chat GPT for an organization, if you took that to the people who were thinking, oh my God, my job's going to cease to exist, they would want to bury chat GPT because they could, they're thinking they're going to be made redundant. Whereas if you sold it to the people who could envisage the savings to the organization, then they're more likely to take on that model. 100%. Because um, there was a time that we did an automation project and to replace these um, data entry uh, operators. They had, this company had 14 data entry operators in Australia who capturing all the invoices from across the world and then manually key that into uh, Dynamics grid planes. So when we automate that system, we implemented a system where they all everything gets automated and that. And that project was so hard because we could not go and sit down with these people and get requirements and understand what they're doing because they knew they're all going to get redundant. That entire department going to go away. So if he went to them to do it, wouldn't have gone right. So you have to go to the top. And they communicate it down. They tell them, but still tough because these guys don't want to say anything. And it's really tough for us when you go sit down with them. They just ask the first question. So am I going to get replaced? You just, it's not that you're like, I don't know. I'm just doing my job. So it's like that. So look, unless you evolve, you're going to be redundant. That's simple as that. It's really ugly thing, but even myself, I have to make sure I stay in front. Otherwise, my business is not going to survive. Somebody else is going to come and do it better than me. And it, it can, it's going to happen. So you have to consistently outlearn, out-strategize, and um, outwork. Right? So consistently doing that. Otherwise, it's going to happen. Chat GPT is awesome. Like I, Since I started my business, I went through so many uh, content writers because I'm an IT company and I get somebody to write an article blog article and i write the entire briefs and stuff still these people like oh yeah i'm an it writer copywriter but they can't like they don't do it right so you read the article you're like this is just really shit really sloppy (laughs) and they put fillers and stuff like that chat gpt you just say Tell me how this works. And it just writes it in such a good way. I'm not saying this is how we use. Like, I still, like, uh, lucky for me, I have, uh, I actually found a really good writer recently. But ChatGPT just does it so well. And yes, those things, unless you really add value, you're supposed to be redundant, be extinct. Like, you should be pushed away so things, we can improve things. And no one wants to face that reality. hundred percent. I'm like, it's it's sad, but it's your fault if you if something's doing better than you. It's your fault. You can't blame anybody. It's it's supposed to happen. What you were just saying there just reminded me of something I was reading recently that Seth Godin wrote, 
And he was saying that when the world changes, you've basically got two choices. You can either fight to try and keep the world the way it's always been, or you can accept that the world has changed and then make decisions in response to that change. 100%. That's like the best way to put together. A lot of people, I think their natural tendency is to fight to keep the world the way it's always been. Because it's really hard to change as well. Like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm like an old record. I'm going to keep going back to my being a developer, right? The technology changes so fast in the programming world. You know how quickly the technology... If you want to be a developer, you have to always stay on top of that changing game, right? Because you have to know what's coming out. You have to learn, okay, this is what how it's, uh, this is how the versions, new version is like this, and this is what you should do, shouldn't do, blah, blah, blah. If you don't do that, if you take your foot off the accelerator, you're going to be outdated in a, in a very short period of time uh, compared to three years ago today. One thing I find really interesting I'm currently developing a university level data science course. And I think about what I learned when I was first learning machine learning at a university level. That was the basics of machine learning as it was back however many years ago it was. But the world's changed since then. Yet a lot of the data science courses are still what they were like back when I learned it. And one of the things I'm trying to think about is, okay, given everything that's happened between when I learned this and now, what would be the best way to teach this? And it's actually quite different from what the answer was back however many years ago. It's just, it's again, it's it's like the whole chat GPT thing. A lot of industry is going to, a lot of jobs going to get redundant by just this one tool. And it's it's actually great. That that's how we always evolved as people. Like it's like you know horse riders and all. Like you don't need them anymore. So things like that, and that, that you have to embrace it. You have to embrace. It. And if you think like there was a time I spent quite a, like uh, checking what, what are the business application of ChatGPT is like. And it's it's amazing and how people come up with it. Like I was talking to somebody and he was talking to me, telling me about how they use ChatGPT to summarize their meeting notes and get it all automatically emailed. And I'm like, that's awesome. I hate taking meeting notes. Obviously, Teams has the new transcript thing, which is awesome. And um, and yeah, that's the thing. So. 10 years ago, like oh, 15 to 20 years ago, you had a person to take notes. That's That was their job. And if you're a copywriter and if you're an average copywriter and just complaining about chat GPT, like writing blogs and there's a copy.ai as well. And then you look at it and go, well, you, you, you meant to be pushed aside because you're not that good. It's it's a harsh thing to say, but that's the real, that's the truth. It actually reminds me of a conversation that I had, this was several years ago with, it was actually Tim Davey who appeared on a previous episode of this podcast. And one of the things I was talking about was how there was this particular task that I had to perform in the job I was doing at that time. And I was saying how I'd really love to get this task off my plate. And one of the questions he asked me was, 
do I actually want to get rid of that task or am I just saying that I want to get rid of it? Because a lot of people will actually complain about a task that they're doing, but then when an opportunity comes up to get rid of it, like, for example, an artificial intelligence tool, they actually want to keep that task because it's a part of their identity. Mm. People also like pat on the back. They're like, oh, we did that, we solved it. Then you have somebody come along and say, oh, I wrote a script and it's going to do that task for you for forever now. They're like, oh, really? Okay. I just like the whole praise I used to get. So you have that task. So. Yeah, yeah. Didn't you do a good job for spending two weeks doing this task? Yeah, something like that. So it's like creating reports. Remember, like there was a, I remember there was a person, she used to create reports for before the uh, meeting, before the big board meeting. And she spent about one and a half weeks, just big, big deal, make a massive deal out of it. Then one, once we put Power BI in, and uh, oh, she was not happy, tell you that, because then after about three months time, people are asking, sorry, what do you do now? Yeah, exactly. But what do you do now? Like, how do you add value to this whole thing? So yeah, it's it's like that. So you got to evolve. Otherwise, you're going to be like, you know, be like Neanderthals. <laughs> so is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next three to five years? I mean, in addition to everything we've just spoken about. I think, so one of the areas I'm really looking forward to is again, going back to ChatGPT. That actually showed us, so before ChatGPT, all these uh, self, uh, what do you call uh, bots, AI bots and all Mm. has been really bad chatbots. People implemented thinking, oh, it's going to improve customer experience, but I have never seen a chatbot improving customer experience. It's just always goes other way around because you ask for something and it gives you something else it's then they're like okay let's turn everything off and just make sure it's uh, specific pre-configured questions and based on that you show these options like that so it's not a chat chat bot so with chat gpt i am really keen to not not next three five years next six months mm to next 12 months. I think the technology, the world is changing so rapidly now, you can't say what's gonna happen three years and five years. The, the only hope I have there is we're not gonna end up in a nuclear war, right? That's my only hope that I can do. But technology-wise, chat GPT-wise, I am really keen to understand how they're going to use this as a self-assistant, true assistant, for people to help them to get what they want, right? So right now I have to type into ChatGPT, hey, ChatGPT, can you show me how to do this? Imagine uh, like I like field service, field sales and things like that. Imagine if we can train, create right data models, create right, uh, give right data to train an AI to give us anything that we need, answer any question on a specific topic with reputed data sources and put it in a car, put it in a, on a phone, put it in 
anywhere, imagine you have that around the office. You just ask a question. That's number one. It will give you the answer. Imagine you ask a question and you get it to do something, a follow-up task. So I am super excited about how we self-train, how we train this one with reputed data sources and what kind of data models we create for that and how that's going to assist us to push the boundary. And I've actually heard that Microsoft and OpenAI are planning on releasing an enterprise mm-hmm. version of ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so oh, yeah. companies can just point it at their own internal data and use it. I am all looking into it because I am super excited about it because one of the biggest things is, let's say you have a big knowledge base, right, within the organization. And right now, people are like, ah, oh, it's in SharePoint. Go find it. Never, apart from a leave application form, I never found anything by searching in SharePoint, right? Because it's garbage. People just upload document, no keywords, nothing. Document one, but that's what it is. So imagine we train something like ChatGPT or, or another AI, similar AI, to share this information and repeat back to us instead of us, um, instead of us reading a document. Imagine that applications to in the healthcare industry. Imagine that application in the sales industry. Imagine that in manufacturing. Imagine that in education. I'm super excited about that. And, and I, I, I've always been a fan of Microsoft technology. I've obviously been there since I started using uh, IT tech, technology stuff. So I am really excited to see what they, how they plan to use that and implement it into business because Microsoft, one thing you have to say is they really do well when it's come to that business space mm. applications. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very keen to see how that's going to work. And there'll be the Google version of ChatGPT very soon as well. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that because apparently some of the... Um, uh, some of the stuff that they actually used was from originally sold by the DeepMind. Uh, that's the Google one. So I was listening to something and they were saying that, again, it's all about the application. They picked up the geek stuff and they applied it. And it's still in beta, I think, right? Chat GPT? Yeah. yeah, it is. And I think this is a really good example of customer experience because... They're giving people what they want and people are excited about it. They're using it. Exactly. 100%. And that's, that's again, that's my biggest, uh, the, the thing I'm looking forward to the next 6 to 12 months, how this is going to revolutionize the customer experience, specifically data access and uh, distribution. Because right now, if ChatGPT says something, I do see a problem. Like if you say, um um, how to improve the benefits of a CRM in um, in manufacturing, you get an answer. And if you ask benefits of a CRM in healthcare industry, you get very, very much the exact answer again. Yes. Right? So it's not there yet, but it's way more like leaps ahead of what you saw. Well, we all know how to trick ChatGPT now. 
And we all know if you trick chat GPT and then call it on it, it will say, yes, I am aware that that's wrong. I know. And this is the correct answer. What they need is to have to be able to build something into it between there where it actually says, no, this is the wrong answer. I'm not going to give you the wrong answer. Here is the correct answer. Yeah, and you can do that when you're in an organization and your own data, you train it the way it is with your data. Then imagine like, imagine you have caregivers who are going to places and doing things. And if they do, if they have an answer, you can actually ask chat GPT or, or that tool, like how to do this. It's not like how to do a surgery. How can I do that? And what's the next steps if this is happening? So the system should be able to tell you here, step one, step two, step three. It's not coming from a Google Wikipedia or something like that. It's coming from your official procedural documents. And it would be fantastic in an emergency situation, such as in a hospital, where you don't have time to look stuff up. And you can say, this is the emergency. What do I need to do now in order to keep this person alive? Absolutely. 100%. 100%. So it's going to be, there's so much applications and it's nice to see people are jumping in. Like um, I'll, we are working on a project right now. Um, and that's why I know how that Microsoft is uh, investing, further investing and bringing it into their business suit. And uh, we are looking at in, incorporating chat GPT to um, assist with uh, finding uh, documents and things like that so just through voice uh, commands so um, yeah so I'm super excited in that space and I'll be that, that's the main thing the next six to 12 months what's going to happen and what final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data it's all about what's in it for the user it's all about what's in it for the user what's in it for the right user Identify the right user who's suffering from a problem. And if you have a data model solution, sell it to them because it's easy to sell it to them because they are suffering from a problem. So it's a matter of putting yourself in your user's shoes and asking yourself, what's in it for me? Yeah, 100%. What's in it for them? It's all about what's in it for them. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the only thing I have to say. For listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact, what can they do? I'm quite active on LinkedIn. So you can um, find me on Dasun Premadasa or you easiest thing, shortest way to search for me is DASCX. That's D-A-S-C-X. That's the name of my consultancy. And uh, you can find me straight away there. Otherwise, you can email me as well at dasunas at dascx.com.au. And I'll put links to those in the show notes. Thanks, Genevieve. And uh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.